0: Welcome to Compounding Capital, a podcast where we dive into the discovery process and talk to some of the leading minds of investing to help you compound your capital. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Discovery and podcast guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Discovery is suitable for wholesale investors only. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. Welcome, my name is Chris Bainbridge and I'm joined by my co-host Mark Divisic. How are you going Mark?
1: Excellent, but how are you feeling Chris after getting in at 1.30am on Saturday morning from Melbourne?
0: Oh great, hungry to do further work on some of those companies we met.
1: Yeah, it has been great to be on the road in Australia meeting companies
0: again. So February was half year reporting for many of our companies. Do you want to share a brief summary of how things went in February?
1: February was a tougher month in the market with many of the gains in January being given up in February. A headwind for markets was the backing up of interest rates, as central banks continued to combat elevated inflation. We saw interest rates increase during the month, with the US 10-year increasing from 3.5% to 3.9%, along with a 50 basis point hike in rates from the RBNZ, taking the cash rate to 4.75%, and the more conservative RBA only increasing rates 25 basis points to 335 the continued interest rate hikes have taken a toll on consumer confidence in both countries and this is despite unemployment rates being stubbornly low. Despite there being few bright spots for the market, the Founders Fund had its strongest month of relative performance being up 2.5% compared to our benchmark being down 3.9% in Kiwi dollar terms. We positioned the portfolio dynamically by increasing weights in companies that are seeing increased demand for their products and services. Many of these companies restructured during COVID period to be leaner, and now they also face less competition as many of the smaller players have left the market. The nirvana situation of demand coming back with a structurally lower cost base is generating higher profit margins for these companies currently. Overall, we feel a number of companies in the portfolio have the potential to surprise positively in the next few months.
0: Exactly. Experience has taught us that a beat in February often precedes an upgrade in May. We typically touch on one contributor and one detractor. Since it was reporting season, we're going to treat you to a bumper edition. Let's start with maintenance and remediation contract to JuroTech. D- delivered the trifecta, a beat, cash flow and outlook. You don't make money out of the past, but we'll briefly touch on the result. Revenue was up 75% year on year to $228 million, drawing underlying EBITDA of 16.2 up 222%. There were three interesting points. One, the first half should have been better. Margins were depressed by delays and projects ramping up, specifically in the Northwest and facades, and Duratech taking a conservative view on its recent acquisition of Wilson Pipeline Fabrication. Which brings us to our second point Wilson's. Duratech acquired Wilson's in October. It was disclosed in the accounts that Wilson's needed to achieve at least 3.75 million EBITDA for the full year to trigger an earnout or circa 3 million for Juratech's 8 months of ownership in this current financial year. Management commentary at the results suggested that this is well on track. However, taking a conservative approach, management only recognised 300k of margin in the first half. Which brings us to our final point. Guidance looks conservative. High level, the math is simple. Juratech is guided to 32 to 35 million EBITDA for FY23. They delivered 16.2 million in the first half doubling the first half puts it at the top end of that range before it takes up the majority of Wilson's contribution. Anyway, you can do the math. Mark was there anything that you thought was interesting from the result?
1: The other insight I picked up was around their business model and this is the nature of engineering and design work called early contractor involvement or ECI in the industry. This work enables Juratech to scope the work required and assess the difficulty of performing the actual maintenance work Typically, when Juritech is involved at an ECI level, its hit rate on winning the contract that comes up for tender increases to an unbelievable 40%. To dumb it down, the rule of thumb here can be a 25 times uplift from the revenue generated from ECI work to actual contracting work, i.e. $5 million of revenue generated from ECI work would result in $125 million in follow-on contracting work. ECI also lowers the risk as Juratech can more accurately bid on contracts knowing what is involved to complete the contract, which ensures margins are more likely to be achieved.
0: Portfolio performance was also buoyed by offshore service provider MMA Offshore. MMA provides vessels which service the offshore oil, gas and wind markets. There are a couple of interesting points. First, MMA upgraded NTA to $1.15 or $423 million. However, that's on the depreciated value of its vessels. Rates still aren't at levels which justify replacement. The replacement value is carried in the accounts at $710 MMA target a return on capital of plus 15%. If MMA achieved this, it would be earning over $100 million of EBITDA on its vessels alone. So what's that worth? Well, the market trades 14 times PE. MMA should trade at a discount to that. Let's say 8 times, 10 times... On the vessels alone, it could be worth 800 million to a billion, versus current market cap of 447. Second, cash, prior tax losses and modest capex requirements means that MMA is positioned to produce plenty of cash and is trading on about a 9% free cash flow yield on this year's consensus numbers alone. Finally, outlook. While MMA's stoic management team are reluctant to talk up the outlook, listed competitor Tidewater in the US has no such qualms. After saying that growth would accelerate in 2023, Tidewater management were asked if they thought the EBITDA growth rate would accelerate further again in 2024. They commented, yes, I do. And in fact, I think profitability will increase even disproportionately. Was there anything that you picked up from the result?
1: Well, post the result, actually, we've we've had some more positive news from MMA. They've been awarded three contracts supporting offshore wind projects. This is fantastic news as these contracts have been awarded at implied day rates of $81,000. This compares to an estimated day rate of $40,000 per day achieved in the first half. And then This shows the premiums that renewable energy players are willing to pay and also the tightness in the market for boats to perform this type of work. This is extremely bullish for MMA, as they will be able to point to this contract as a benchmark for future contract re-signings as the existing book of work rolls off onto new contract pricing. And in the last up cycles being 2005, 2007, and 2013 to 2015, offshore wind demand was non-existent. Now we've got fewer boats on the water, no new supply of boats being ordered, higher demand from offshore oil and gas, and the tailwind from renewables, which is all putting upward pressure on day rates. The last contributor for the month was Hub24. Hub is an Australian investment and superannuation platform and has been a key holding since inception. Hub's result was strong across the board, balancing high growth with margin improvement. There are a couple of highlights. Firstly, net flows. Well, Hub provided an update of funds under advice of 58.5 billion, which implies net flows of 900 to 950 million over the first six weeks of the year. This quantum was similar to key competitor Net Wealth but off a lower base implies faster growth. We'd expect this to continue with advisor ratings, future flow intentions of 91% for hub compared to 79% for net wealth. It's not merely the size of the flows, but the quality. And another feature of the result was the resilient admin fee margins. As balances grow, participants typically receive fee discounts. However, there was immaterial admin fee compression during the half. Part of this is a higher skew towards superannuation flows, which are low balance, but stickier and much higher margin. Chris, was there anything you took from the result?
0: You've touched on some great points. The only one I'd note is that the runway for growth remains long. Hub has about 5% market share and is taking over 10% of all gross flows. Another way to look at this is that Hub has grown its funds under advice per advisor from $10 million to $15 million, versus the industry average of around $50 million per advisor. There's considerable runway for Hub penetrating existing advisors, not to mention growth from new ones. The best thing he can do is find a structural grower and then be patient. Hub was trading 30 cents in 2015 and is over $28 today. Hub's trading sub 20 times FY24, growing 20% annually with highly sticky revenues and upsides from large transitions. We believe patience here will continue to be rewarded
1: moving on to detractors for the month one of the detractors was Hanson. Hanson is a position we've held on the portfolio due to its defensive nature it supplies mission critical software to the energy utility and telco sectors which are typically very resilient Hanson has a 950 million market cap founder-led business run by andrew henson and he owns 17.5 percent of the company andrew is very passionate if you've ever Listen to him, and he regularly espouses the virtues of his company, being able to generate solid cash flows year in, year out while generating significant profit margins, while comparing his company to many of his compatriots in the sector, which are growing faster but incurring significant losses. Some of the most successful business models of all time have been built around the customer stickiness of vertical market software, such as constellation software in the US and also Oracle. And Henson somewhat fits this mould. What is less clear is whether Hanson has been over by not investing adequately in their software. In the industry, this is what is known as technical debt. Because of the nature of the software, especially enterprise software, which is extremely sticky and difficult to replace, companies can get away with uninvesting in their product without fear of their clients leaving. This is especially relevant today, as many software companies are facing a costly transition of their legacy software to the cloud. Hinton's first half 23 was always going to be a difficult comparable as they were comping against a strong period the prior year where they recognised significant one-off license revenue. Despite their recurring revenue growing 7% compared to the year before, this was offset by the non-recurring high margin license revenue falling 36%. This resulted in a stagnant overall revenue and when you combine this with an increased investment in employees. This resulted in first half underlying EBITDA being down 17%. Hansen also just scraped in above its 30% EBITDA margin target, achieving 30.1% margin conveniently. However, it got there by capitalizing $3 million more in development costs than the prior period. Ultimately, free cash flow declined to only $7.5 million from $35 million a year ago. Chris, what do you think about the result?
0: Hansen reiterated its medium-term target of $500 million and 30% EBITDA margin, but said that it would take longer. The target requires acquisitions to achieve this from the current revenue base of circa 300 mil. Unfortunately, acquisitions are taking longer than Avatar 2. Part of the problem is valuation discrepancy. Vendors continue to demand multiples above those where Hansen itself is trading, limiting the upside from M&A.
1: Overall, Hansen is an above-average quality company. However, Trying to achieve a 15-20% to return from this investment will be difficult, unless he can execute well on M&A. The core markets for his product are just not growing fast enough to ensure profits can grow at that rate, and free cash flow may also suffer if there is a requirement to catch up on development spend. We exited the position promptly post the first half result, after having already halved it earlier in the month, so the damage from the 13% fall during the month was limited.
0: This brings us to our most exciting part of our show, leaders and laggards from the ASX. What do you have for us this month, Mark, a leader or a laggard?
1: Well, as per usual, another leader. A leader this month was Nexted Group, which increased 12% in February. So what did Nexted do? Well, they are a portfolio of education companies run by Glenn Elith. Well, we've known Glenn for over 10 years, as he was a the original CEO of Redhill Education, which is the foundation business of what is now called NextEd. NextEd businesses span student recruitment agencies, English language, vocational and higher education, and they cater to both domestic and international students. They have, a, they have both online and on-campus delivery, and they receive government funding for domestic students and private tuition for international students. The working capital cycle for NextEd is typically very positive as students prepay their tuition up to a year in advance and revenue is recognised as they complete their courses. Chris, you've followed the international education market for some time having looked at IDP education. Why do you think it's such a structural growth market?
0: International education to Australia is an attractive proposition for overseas students and Australia is the third most popular destination in the world. It's no surprise, the weather's good, wages are high and students can work part-time while studying, while many use it as a means of gaining post-study work rights and ultimately immigration into Australia. This pathway to immigration enables Nexted to provide further diplomas and bachelor degrees to international students once they complete their English language courses. These courses are much higher yielding for Nexted and provide a valuable cross-sell opportunity. After a torrid time during COVID, when there was no inbound international students, Nexted has thrived as students began to return. NextEd international students account for greater than 75% of the total student and revenue mix, and this was a key driver of the first half result, with over 4,000 students studying English language at 31 December, versus only 300 in the prior year.
1: Yeah, the other point to add is many of the smallest English language competitors have left the industry, and this has allowed NextEd to gain market share as students have returned. Education is a business with extreme fixed cost leverage, and the key measure is utilization of classrooms and teachers. Next year, Nexted's EBITDA earnings are forecast to go from 17 million this year to 25 million. However, these forecasts could easily prove conservative, as they only imply a 24% incremental EBITDA margin, whereas gross margins in this business are over 60% and the only cost with increasing uh, classroom utilisation is extra teaching staff. The lesson for us in this one is go with the dominant trend. There are very few ways to gain exposure to international education in Australia on the ASX and that's despite it being worth 37 billion dollars to the Australian economy pre-COVID. It was clearly a recovery sector and still is recovering. There's a reduced competition post-COVID and Nexted is a first-class operator with an accomplished management team. Chris, what have you got this month?
0: I'll balance things out with a laggard. One company which failed to deliver during reporting was Domino's. Domino's share price dropped 33% in February, ending around $50, which is a far cry from the giddy heights of $167 reached in September 2021. Heading into the result, the consensus was that Domino's had passed the worst. On the 1st of December, Domino's raised $150 million to acquire all the shares held in its German joint venture. It used that opportunity to reconfirm guidance and state the business continues to track to plan. Shorters also agreed, with the outstanding short position declining into the result. However, the market's positive view didn't pan out. Domino's delivered a result below expectations and proceeded to, down- to downgrade same-store sales growth and store rollout targets for FY23. The surprise in Domino's result was the fact that same-store sales declined in the first half more than expected, and then became significantly more negative in the first seven weeks of the second half of 23, down 2.2%. All the more surprising as Domino's benefited from the World Cup in Europe in the first half. It seems clear that consumers have pushed back against the measures intended to pass on inflationary costs and boost margins. Short term, sentiment is cooked. It's likely dominoes will need to assist franchisees on margins for example, through perhaps deferring advertising contributions, whilst also facing higher input costs itself. Sentiment also wasn't helped by CEO Don Mage, selling $7.6 million of shares on the lows, reportedly to keep his interest repayments at bay. There's also the question, does consensus need to come down more? What did you think of the result, Mark?
1: Well, Domino's is a great company, and long-term, there's a lot to like here. We believe there's capacity to lift targets in Europe, well, above their guided amount. Put another way, the 9 to 12% store growth should be sustainable for a long time versus the slowdown implied by consensus in later years. There could also be upside to terminal margins. Europe's a drag at present as it's subscale. However, Domino's have talked to a goal of 10% EBIT margins to network sales, and if you back their track record, they should achieve this.
0: Let's wrap it there. Thanks everyone for listening. If you have any follow-up, you can contact us at info at discoveryfunds.co.nz. Until next time, good luck compounding your capital.